$1,000 a month, if not more, just from this app on my phone. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's called Audible. Okay, so I'm gonna show you right here. I have a check from Audible. This is for $1,100. Uh, this one's for $1,100 again. And then this one is $1,200. Every month I am getting paid by Audible. For those of you that don't know what Audible is, it's actually a child company of Amazon, which is one of the largest marketplaces in the world. So Audible is where people normally buy.
Well, good evening and welcome. We would like to ask everyone to come on in and have a seat. Just a moment, our wonderful Logan Stone is going to lead us in a couple of songs. And then our speaker uh, tonight is uh, Steve Holiday. Steve and Holly have this wonderful um, ministry called ultimateescape.org. And Steve has been here with us before. Legend is with us again tonight. And so we're excited uh, to have them. Uh, Steve does a lot of different kinds of seminars, classes, and workshops, uh, a lot of it dealing with uh, sexuality uh, related to teens and young adults, but also, of course, to uh, all folks that uh, need to hear that message, and that's everyone uh, that I know of, and I'm glad that he's here because this is a, this is a message I've looked forward to since we were able to get confirmation of him being here, and it's one of the most needed ones in our series, Risk Takers, Putting Your Faith on the Line. I believe he'll be using uh, the story of, of Joseph this evening and, uh, and speaking about these related matters, uh, and we are super glad that you're here, brother. Uh, there are a lot of prayer concerns and announcements in the bulletin uh, that you got on Sunday that's also online on our website. Uh, there's also our app. And so I hope that you'll look at that and make sure that you're current on those who have recently lost loved ones and those we have several who will be having a surgery over the next uh, couple of weeks. So be sure and take a note of that. Uh, also, of course, our uh, uh, Reconnect Marriage Workshop is coming up with Owen and Lauren Mitchell. That's next month, uh, about a month from now, actually. And you can get some more information on that at our info booth, also on our website, including the QR code. Even if you're coming for just part of it, we want you to register. Uh, I don't know how the rumor got started, but uh, I want to make it clear that there is no uh, uh, number limit as to how many we can have. We can have as many as we have space for. That's what Owen has said. And so it'll be in our Family Life Center. We'll have two couples to a table. And, um, and so we've got room for a whole lot. So please, uh, please put the word out on that and be sure and plan on coming uh, yourselves. One extra announcement tonight, Linda Dixon will have a heart cath done this coming Tuesday here in Tyler at CVC. Dr. Carney will do the procedure at 1130 a.m. So let's remember uh, uh, Linda and Howard in our prayers, especially Linda and especially this coming uh, Tuesday. Let's bow for a moment uh, before we sing and before we study. Father, we are blessed to be a part of your family. We're blessed to be a part of the church. We're blessed to be a part of this church. Father, we're thankful for our leaders, and we ask that you bless them uh, with uh, guidance and wisdom. Help them, Father, to be uh, in our lives as sheep, as shepherds are to be. And we are so grateful, Father, and we praise you uh, for those that minister to us uh, in so many different ways. Our, Our elders, our deacons and their families and other ministry leaders. And tonight, Father, we're thankful for Steve and Holly and their great ministry. We pray, Father, that you would bless them, and we pray that you would bless our night together this evening. We pray, Father, for Linda and for uh, so many others that we have been mentioning. We ask your blessings upon those that are facing upcoming surgeries, those who are recovering, uh, those who have recently lost loved ones. And, Father, for uh, all in this church family, And this community, we ask uh, your blessings to help us, Father, that we will be able to share uh, the light and love of Jesus Christ with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Good evening. So our tagline with Ultimate Escape is, you can learn a lot about sex from a, and then fill in the blank. I think the last time I was here, if I remember right, we had uh, like a can of Play-Doh and a game of checkers and a chocolate bunny. If, if anybody was here and that sounds familiar, then at least uh, my memory is somewhere on the same track as yours. Uh, tonight, we're going to learn a lot about sex from a Tootsie Pop. Uh, anybody here a fan? I know this is an older candy. Anybody here a fan of Tootsie Pops? Okay, perfect. I saw a hand go right up. Now, would you hold on to that for me, please? I'm, I'm not getting a yes or no. Would you, would you hold on to that for me, please? Okay, thank you. Perfect. Got a head nod. That, that'll work. We're going to come back to that uh, later on, but we're just planting the, the seed of thought right now. And uh, hopefully in the background of your mind, you're going to be spinning. Okay, where is he going with that? How, how, there we go. That's okay. Genesis 39, I want to launch into our topic tonight uh, with story from Genesis 39. If you're familiar with the character of Joseph, uh, Joseph had a lot in his background. Uh, his mother died uh, early on when a younger brother uh, was born, and uh, then he went to visit uh, some brothers out when they were at work in the field, and lo and behold, he didn't get to go home because they sold him into slavery. Uh, he ends up going down to Egypt, and that's where we're going to pick up here uh, in Genesis 39. I'm going to read through the story just to set the stage for the story, and then we're going to go back and unpack more. But right now, just stay with me. Just going to uh, get this fresh in our mind, literally reading through the text, Genesis 39, starting in the first verse, and reading some selected verses uh, early in the chapter. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been, brought to, uh, has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. 
he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Perception. When you hear that story, what do you see? If you were going to describe for somebody, basically at the core, what just happened, I'm curious what, what, you, might, um, what you might describe. Because what I've heard for years and years and years growing up in the church is Joseph faced a moment of temptation and he did the right thing. And then he was mistreated for it. How many of you, that's kind of the, the, uh, the storyline or the narrative that you've heard this story presented it? Joseph had a moment of temptation and he did the right thing. How many of you, okay. How many of you have heard this approach from some different standpoint? Seeing very few hands. I think we all probably have some, something in common here with what, how this has been described to us. I want to go back and I want to start unpacking what happened and see if maybe we start to see a different narrative forming. Again, it's the exact same text we're going to read back through. But as we read it, I want to highlight some different dynamics and see what picture you get. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar bought him from the Ishmaelites. He lived in the house with his Egyptian master. Recognize there is a power differential. Joseph is a slave. He was purchased. He's living in the house as a slave. He is in charge of the household. A lot has been entrusted to him, but... He is a slave of the owner of the house. His master's wife took notice of Joseph. She says, come to bed with me. He refused. Basically, he describes to her how good he's got it. And in doing so, informs her that if he were to do what she wants, it's going to wreck what he's got. And on top of that, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? She spoke to Joseph day after day, but he refused. Basically, he said no. At one point, when nobody else is around, she grabs him and tries to force him to have sex with her. But he left and ran out. At least without his cloak. Don't know if he was naked. Don't know that there's any reason to think he was naked. He just, his cloak, which my understanding is an outer covering, was left behind. She said, he came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. That's her story. That's the narrative she describes to the other people in the house. When her husband comes home, she tells him that story. Joseph tried to have sex with me. I screamed. He ran out and left his cloak. When the master heard the story that his wife told him, he burned with anger. 
And he took Joseph and put him in prison. Hearing that, do you hear Joseph faced a moment of sexual temptation or do you start to hear a different picture? Because to me, focusing on all those dynamics that are right there in the text, it creates a totally different picture. Let me see if I can help us zone in a little better. Let's flop the genders around. Let's say 19-year-old girl takes a summer intern job as a children's ministry or youth ministry intern at a church. And one of the middle-aged to older-age elders and his wife are going to provide a place for her to stay. She gets to live with them for the summer. And after a few weeks, the elder starts to notice how beautiful this 19-year-old girl is. And so he starts telling her, have sex with me, have sex with me, have sex with me. Day after day after day after day, he's trying to convince her to have sex with him. And she keeps saying no until one day, it's just the two of them in the house. She comes home. He's the only one there. He grabs her by the blouse, tries to force her to go have sex with him. She escapes, and in the moment of escape, her shirt comes off, and she runs out of the house. And then his wife comes home, and he says, you know, that girl we hired, she came on to me, and she wanted to have sex with me. She even took her, her shirt off and left it right there. Does that sound to you like a young lady who experienced a moment of sexual temptation and made the right choice? Or does that sound like a very different scenario? You see, when we flip the gender around, it's crystal clear what's going on. There is no, she's being tempted to commit adultery. It is plain as day. She is being sexually assaulted. We are so cultured that guys always want to have sex, that even when we read through Genesis 39 and see the story of Joseph, we don't see it for what it is. It is sexual abuse. It is sexual trauma. And he does the right thing, and then he gets in big trouble for doing the right thing. It is so common, statistically, Statistics are across the board. It depends on how you define sexual abuse. But what I've seen fairly consistent is that three out of five females are sexually assaulted typically before they graduate from high school. Three out of five. And the numbers are roughly um, two out of five boys are sexually abused at some point. Again, largely sexual abuse for guys happens as young children or as teenagers. I, earlier this year, I sat down with a group of 17 and 18-year-old girls in a youth group. There were 10 of them. Eight out of the 10 shared their stories of sexual assault. Do you hear 
the statistic I'm sharing with you. In a youth group, in their just graduated from high school group of girls, 80% had been sexually victimized. Many of them by guys in the youth group or trusted adults. When you talk about your faith, basically the rubber meets the road. And risking uh, letting our faith guide us. With what I do professionally, um, I do a lot of speaking at churches and schools, uh, universities around sexuality, uh, but I also do a lot of counseling. And in the last six years, I've worked almost exclusively with females who are dealing with sexual trauma. And almost all coming with a faith background, you know, church members active in their churches. Uh, ranging in age from 15 to in their 50s. It is a huge issue that churches don't talk about, but our church pews are filled with people who have lived it. And if we want our faith to guide us into the deep waters of what people are dealing with and some of the most sensitive areas that have the largest impact on us, the area of sexual brokenness or sex gone wrong, uh, early sexual encounters, unwanted sexual touch, I have found very few other areas that take, um, that take so much a toll on a person's faith. Because one of the natural questions is, where was God? So for the 15 and 16-year-old girl whose boyfriend at church the good Christian guy at church who all the adults thought was like the best guy who victimized her sexually over a two-year period hundreds of times. She couldn't count the number of times. She said no, and he ignored what she said and forced her to do sexual things to him. For her... There is a very real question. Why didn't God do something? It's a natural question. And it's a fair question. And theologically, there are some good answers to that. But from an emotional standpoint, there may be a gap between what I theologically know in my head. God created a world and gave us freedom of choice. And one of the consequences of a world of freedom of choice is Sometimes other people's choices are not fair to me, and other people's choices hurt me. That's the theology, and it's solid theology. But it doesn't deal with the hurt and the sense of betrayal and the sense of abandonment of why didn't God, who can do anything he wants to do and is all-powerful and was there and witnessed it, why didn't he stop it? It's a fair question. Common dynamics of sexual assault. A power differential. Notice Joseph was a servant. He was a slave. Potiphar's wife was the wife of the master of the house. The owner of the house. The owner of Joseph. Huge power differential. Lustful desire. It's lust-based. 
It's not love like 1 Corinthians 13 attraction. It's purely lust. It's a self-serving motive. I want this person to either let me use them or do something for me that is 100% focused on bringing me pleasure with no thought of the consequence that it has on this person. It contains force or manipulation or threat. That force can be emotional force or it can be physical violence. It can be nobody's going to believe you. They're going to believe me. And everybody's going to think you're a and then fill in the blank. That's emotional force. It doesn't take any physical force. Emotional was enough. Grooming. What I mean by grooming is getting somebody comfortable, getting them to trust them, which typically can begin in you are so beautiful or you're the only one who gets me or you are so much better than everybody else. You are so much more beautiful than all the other girls around. Um, Pressure, like Potiphar's wife, day after day after day after day, have sex with me, have sex with me, have sex with me. I hear from females who, especially if it's a male friend or a boyfriend, they say no, they say no, the girl says no, until at some point it has just beaten her down so much, she just stops saying no. She doesn't say yes. She just stops saying no. That was a central theme in that group of 10 girls that I was describing for you. They finally just stopped saying no or stopped trying to fight this older, bigger guy off. A lack of consent. And what I mean by consent, these are things required for consent. Getting somebody to do something with you is not consent. Number one, you've got to be old enough to give consent. If you're 14 years old, you're not old enough to consent to anything from a sexual standpoint. Even a broken world legal system recognizes that. So you've got to be old enough, number one, to understand what you're doing and understand the repercussions or the consequences and recognize what that's, that this is going to do over a lifetime and not what it's going to do right now for this guy that you think is such a great guy. You've got to be old enough to understand that, and that doesn't happen when you're a young teenager. My mental status has to be functional. I cannot be under the influence of drugs or of alcohol. I cannot be asleep. I cannot be drugged. I cannot be so tired that my brain's not functioning. I have to have control of my mental faculties. There cannot be any duress. I cannot be under duress. I cannot be in a car 10 miles out of town at 10 o'clock at night thinking if I don't let this guy do what he's trying to do, he's going to kick me out of the car and I'm going to be stuck out here and there's no way I can get back. Okay, that's duress. Um, If I fear this guy is going to do something worse if I don't do what he's telling me to do, that's duress. There is no consent involved in that. If I fear what this guy is going to tell other people, that's duress. There is no consent in that picture. There has to be a lack of a power differential. We've got to be on even keel. So if I am 16 and this guy is 24, there is no ability to consent because that's a huge age difference and there is a huge power difference in that. Um, If this is an employer, 
if this is somebody who has the ability to kick me out of a house, um, any power difference like that takes consent out of the picture. An awareness of the situation. If I am going out with this guy thinking we're just going to go hang out, maybe go to a movie, maybe go to a restaurant, we're just going to go hang out and have a good time. If that's what I think is going on, but this guy is coming to the evening planning on getting me to have sex with him or do some kind of sexual something for him, there is no consent in that picture because I don't know what's happening. I'm getting caught off guard. There has to be an active desire to participate. Active meaning continual. So maybe I said yes to let's go make out. But then making out starts turning into hands somewhere I'm not comfortable and I say no. The fact that I was okay with making out does not mean I gave consent for anything further. And no matter how far along things are, if I say stop, I don't want to do this anymore, Consent is now gone. Because just because I started into it doesn't mean I am now committed as one of the, as a mother of one of the girls in the group of 10 said, well, if you said yes once, then you said yes forever. No, that is a lie. I would argue that is a lie from the pit of hell itself. Saying yes once does not have any indication on anything beyond that one time. Um, more of the dynamics isolation or entrapment like when Joseph came and there was nobody else in the household and Potiphar's wife capitalized on that isolation and the house then became a trap if you are taken into a room and the door gets locked behind you it's now a trap If you are convinced to go in a car somewhere and go to a parking lot where nobody else is, that is isolation. It has now become a trap. If you are taken far away from anybody who could possibly help you, that is isolation. That is entrapment. There is is danger in that picture just because of the setting at this point. Harm, a sense of violation, and often a shattered life. If you want to know more about the shattered life from a scriptural standpoint, uh, look at the story of Tamar and what her stepbrother um, Amnon did to her. And scripture says that she became and lived out basically the rest of her life as a desolate woman. Um, It is amazing the effect of just a couple of minutes of somebody's life and what that can do for years and years and years down the road. A false narrative. This is what Potiphar's wife said. It was completely false. It was a lie. It it had no nugget of truth to it other than he left his cloak. Yeah, he left his cloak, but he didn't come trying to have sex with her. And oftentimes a false narrative develops. Um, And that false narrative can come from the perpetrator of the abuse or the false narrative can come from a, a friend who just doesn't get it. I was working with a young lady, 16 years old. She had been at a Christian leadership convention. Um, Some family drama in her family. She was upset, in tears, went over to another room where she thought another family from church was at, knocked on the door. The teenage boy opens the door. She goes in expecting the whole family to be there, but the rest of the family's not there. It's just the teenage boy. Again, she is emotionally upset. She is looking. It's a friend. 
uh, a friend she's known for a long time. She's just looking for somebody to basically have a shoulder to cry on. But in that moment, he sees his opportunity and he sexually assaults her. She goes to school the following Monday and confides in a friend what happened. But what the friend says is, I can't believe you did that. And now a false narrative in her mind gets planted. Because when the friend says, I can't believe you did that, now to her, it feels like she did something. So as she is describing this to me, I just said, would you, would you help me out? Tell me what you did. She sat there for about 30 seconds to a minute. And then I saw a big smile break out on her face. And she said, I didn't do anything. He did it. Yes, accurate. Truth just enters the picture. But it's totally normal for a distorted reality to get planted in that moment. And then we walk away from that moment believing the distorted reality. Many people blame the victim. This is one of the most common things that I hear um, if you hadn't been at that party, that wouldn't have happened, so it was your fault. If you hadn't dressed the way that you did, that wouldn't have happened. If you had not sat on Uncle So-and-So's lap in your pajamas, he wouldn't have done that. All of those are lies. There is no truth in that. We don't blame the victim. The responsibility lies in the one who is doing. So when 16-year-old boy in the youth group sends a picture of his genitals to unsuspecting girl in the youth group. And she opens up the picture because it's, it's an image sent from a friend. And now she sees that. She has done nothing wrong. She didn't do anything. The doing is by the boy who takes the picture and sends it to her. The fact that she's seen it in her mind now may feel like she just did something wrong. No, she didn't. He did. Now recognize um, it, it is not always the guy who is doing the sexual harassing or the sexual um, assaulting. Sometimes it's the female, but just statistically, it is more frequent that guys force unwanted sexual contact whether that's a sexual picture that a girl did not ask for and doesn't want, or sexual touch, it is statistically more common that guys do that to females. And so that's why a lot of my examples are coming from that perspective. There is often an inappropriate response from other people. Sometimes that's an inappropriate response from a parent who is now punishing the one who has been sexually assaulted. Um, because we, uh, somebody just didn't stop to get the story. All they, they have an idea is something sexual happened, and they just jumped to the assumption that it was a wanted sexual experience. And sometimes that's because in the mind of the, the young girl, somehow or another, it was her fault. That's a normal effect of sexual assault. In the wake of sex gone wrong, normal things, number one, tons of shame. I feel dirty. It is common for somebody after a sexual assault to go sit in a shower for a very long period of time just trying to wash the shame and the I feel nasty off. Now, obviously, a shower is not going to wash anything emotionally from us, but it's a, common, uh, it's a common response to somebody who's been sexually violated. Fear. Fear that it will happen again. Fear that people are going to find out. Fear that somebody's going to think I'm a terrible person. 
um, fear that I'm going to get in trouble, hurt because we have been attacked, we have been assaulted, and anger. And anger is 100% appropriate. Anger is the emotion God gave us in the face of something that is unfair or unjust. Oftentimes, people who have been hurt sexually or when sex goes wrong, we're on hyper alert. We've, it feels like something bad is going to happen 24-7. It just, that like, um, if I leave the house, if I go out with another person, if I find myself in this position, something bad is going to happen. And the belief, people want to hurt me, often gets planted. And oftentimes, there's mistrust. So I'm going to do a check-in. Do you have my Tootsie Pop? Good job. Question for you. I noticed the wrapper is still on it. You haven't taken the wrapper off. You've been holding it for, what, 15, 20, 25 minutes, but you haven't put it in your mouth. How come? Did anybody hear me say, don't put this in your mouth? Does anybody remember, do you remember what I did say to you? I said, would you hold this for me? And you have. Um, in your mind, when I said, would you hold it for me, whose Tootsie Pop is that? Do we, did, did you hear what he said? It, 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 to him, it seems like it's, it's my Tootsie Pop. Do we all agree that he's accurate? I said, would you hold this for me? I didn't say this is yours. I said, would you hold it for me? Implies it's still mine. Good job. Thank you very much. It is now yours. I'm giving it to you. You can do whatever you want to with that. Now, I would say if you're going to eat it, just hold on about uh, 10 or 15 more minutes before you eat it, but it's yours. Thank you. Please give him a hand. Good job. Here's what you learn about sex from a Tootsie Pop. If it's not yours, you protect it. You keep it safe. You don't use it for your own pleasure when it's not yours. When somebody is not ours, like we do not have the right to them in a sexual way, meaning they are not our spouse. We are not married. We have not committed our life to be only with that person. When we do not have the right to them sexually, we don't use them in a sexual way. We protect them. That's what God calls us to. There is a point at which we have a right to each other sexually, and that is once we get married. Refer back to the fun theology of sex we covered three years ago. (laughs) That's the boundary, marriage. But if I'm not married to that person, my job is to protect them, not to try to get them to do something with me or for me. That's what God calls us to. Because until they are ours, they only belong to themselves and to God. Once we are married, they now belong to themselves and to God and to us. But until we're married, there is no they belong to us. Therefore, I have no right to do anything sexually with them. From a God's plan standpoint. In the wake of sex gone wrong, there is mental friction. The brain is doing this. My brain does not like what happened, but it happened. And one of those two things, something has to change. Either 
I will deny that it happened or minimize it like, well, then it was no big deal. Sex really doesn't matter. Sex is nothing special. Okay, that's one way to stop the friction. Um, the other way to stop the friction is to process through and deal with the fact that it happened. Because reality is, it happened. My brain didn't want it to happen. And that's where the healing process becomes um, the, the next step. But ways, the unhealthy ways the brain tries to stop that mental friction internalize responsibility because as long as I deserved it, then it's not, it's not a bad thing that happened. I deserved it because I'm just a bad, dirty person anyway. Uh, I'm worthless, so it, it, I, I deserve that. I'm, I'm, I am good for nothing else. Common belief that happens to people who have been sexually misused. That's all I'm good for. That's all that guys want. Um, constantly distract. We have to do something all the time. We have to be busy, 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 actively doing something because if we're not busy, then the memory comes up or the thoughts come up. Part of my story, which is on episode one of our podcast, the Ultimate Escape podcast, uh, part of my story is being a 16-year-old guy at a Bible camp. I went to a camp. I didn't know anybody there. I knew a couple of adults, just youth ministers in the area. But I, I went not having any peers, no friends. I just showed up for Bible camp that year. 16. First night of Bible camp, sexually abused by the youth minister in the cabin. I didn't want it. I didn't know what in the world to do. I was filled with shame. And so I didn't talk about it. From age 16 to age 33, I never talked about it. But every single day, from age 16 to age 33, the memory came up in my mind. And I had to actively stay busy trying to do something to distract myself. Um, that's just the way our brain defaults into defensive mode to try to deal with the friction that it doesn't like. We recreate or we reenact the trauma. I was speaking at a church uh, several years ago. In the audience was about a 23-year-old female. About a week later, I got a text followed by a long email. She was sharing her story. She had grown up in the church. She was committed to purity, wore the ring all through high school, early years of college, very sexually pure. Met a guy in college. They decide to get married. Once they are engaged, they have sex. But in her words, she said, Steve, I still came back to, I can tell their dad, I can tell my, my children that I've only had sex with their dad. That was kind of where, where my brain went to, to be at peace with what we were doing. And then her fiance's best friend raped her. And she said over the next 18 months, she had over 30 anonymous sexual partners. She went from growing up, purity was important, and conducting herself in an appropriate sexual way to having over 30 anonymous partners in less than two years. That is reenacting or recreating her trauma. And it is common among sexual trauma victims. I'm not saying it's a conscious choice. People don't set out and just, I'm going to go recreate my trauma. It is a subconscious attempt for the brain to try to make it right. And here's the deep psychobabble on that. The brain does not like what happened. And so we're going to put ourselves in a position hoping it goes different. 
Because what I want is the next time I'm in that situation, I want it to go right. I want the guy to treat me the right way. But because I keep putting myself in the same pond, surrounded with the same fish, I keep catching the same fish. Are you following what I'm saying? When I keep putting myself around the same kind of people, I keep getting treated the same way. It's an endless attempt by the brain to try to make the right thing happen when the wrong thing happened. But it is a normal response to sexual trauma um, victims. And we try to minimize the pain. It's not that big of a deal. Sex really isn't a problem. I really wanted it. We're we're just coming up with something in the brain to make the pain stop. I didn't really want it, but if I tell myself I did, then it doesn't hurt so bad. Those are normal responses to people who have been hurt sexually. How do we heal? Because ultimately, God is the author of healing. And based on the statistics, we have churches full of people who need to experience healing around this area. Number one, acknowledge the issue. If we as a body of Christ continue to just ignore it and don't talk about it and don't recognize that it's happening, if we don't recognize that on any given Sunday, over 50% of the people age 30 and under, over 50% have already experienced the devastating unwanted sexual encounter. I'm not making this stuff up. That's a fairly conservative estimate based on the statistics around sexual trauma. Um, I will share this. You probably never heard this on the news because the CDC, to the best of my knowledge, they never publicize this. But I happen to have a contact who was in the weekly meetings on the early side of the COVID isolation. Three months into COVID isolation, the CDC internally was using the statistic, sexual abuse in America has gone up 100% in the early months of COVID isolation. 100%. It was already rampant. For the next 10 to 15 years, we will just start to see the tip of the iceberg of what our young people have lived through in the last two and a half years. From a what I'm hearing... Um, from working with older teens who are just now starting to hear the stories of the last two and a half years. It is a huge issue. As a church, we need to respond to it. We need to acknowledge it head on. It happened in the Bible, and it happens today. So number one, don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. That just doubly victimizes the person. Listen with compassion. Listen through a lens of, I just want to try to understand what this has done to you. There is no need to blame somebody right now. Can we just listen and deal with the reality without trying to find some place to put the blame? Bring truth to the picture. In the moment of the trauma, all kinds of lies can get planted. It is just fertile ground for the enemy to throw lie after lie after lie. 
You wanted it. It was your fault. If you hadn't done this, it wouldn't have happened. Anybody who hears about this, they're going to think you're dirty. Nobody's going to want you. In the, those are all lies from the enemy, but they can feel so true. So we need to find ways to help people start to recognize the truth, bring truth into the picture. Allow feelings to be processed. Because sometimes, as well-intentioned Christians, we short-circuit God's emotional processing plan by telling people, you just have to forgive and move on. If you don't forgive them, you're not going to get to go to heaven. That's a huge spiritual abuse to heap on somebody who has been victimized in, in any way, especially in a sexual way. Yes, the end goal is to heal to a point where I can forgive the person who has hurt me. Just like Jesus forgives us and Jesus forgave the people who crucified him, we want to get to that place. But that is a process. And it is often a, I'm making the decision again, and the next day I make the decision again to forgive. And for years and years and years, I'm having to make that decision daily and choosing to forgive. But if somebody has just bullied me or forced me by spiritual manipulation to say that I forgive when I haven't had a chance to really internally go through that process, it causes uh, a lot more hurt and it makes it much more complicated to heal. So allow people to express their feelings. It's, it's okay to be angry. Anger is a God-given emotion. How we act in our anger can be inappropriate or dangerous or hurtful. But being angry is not sinful and being angry is not wrong. And there are some things that deserve anger and being sexually abused deserves anger. God is not upset at us because we are angry at somebody for mistreating us. And we model Jesus for people. Um, over and over, Jesus came into contact with people who were hurting Compassion, mercy, grace, um, gentleness. We do our best to model Jesus as we're walking with people in a very, very difficult journey. Just to leave as, as a resource, uh, I mentioned our podcast. It's available on you know, iTunes, on Google Podcasts. It's available through our website, but uh, for most people who have smartphones, uh, it is easier to use one of the podcast apps uh, to access it. Um, but episode two, Holly shares her story. I wish every parent of a teenager would sit down and listen to episode two with their teenager. Holly shares her story starting, and teens are going to come up with me right now, starting at age 14 to age 17. She was raped over and over and over by her boyfriend, who was several years older than her, and was the star of the youth group in the church in the next town. Everybody thought this guy who sang in the singing group and preached on youth night was just the greatest guy. And from right after they started dating, she was 14, he was 17, he began pressuring her and forcing her to do sexual things, and it went on for over two years. I lived through the aftermath of that because Holly did not get healing for that until we'd been married nine years. So I saw, I got an upfront row seat to the devastation and what it does to a woman. 
who has been hurt in a sexual way. Um, Her story is very much worth listening to. And especially if you are the mom of of a son, listen to it. Talk about it. I think it is extremely helpful when we can introduce truth and reality into the worldview of our young people. Um, That's episode two. Episode 11 is beyond the politics of sexual assault. And it's a good introduction into how do we deal with this topic. Uh, Episode 16 is more toward adult females who have a background of sexual trauma and what might you need to do at this stage of life in order to deal with that. All three of those episodes address the, the issue of sex gone wrong when somebody else's decision results in me being hurt. How do I deal with that? It is a heavy topic. can feel the weight of the air in the room right now. And we have just scratched the surface of what I deal with day in, day out. Um, Take care of yourself. If you are aware of internally stuff is going on in you, pay attention to that. And I encourage you, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody who is a spiritual mentor. Talk to somebody who is a safe person in your life and process out whatever it is. If it's fear, if it's shame, if it's hurt, if it's guilt, if it's lonely, whatever that is, have somebody to talk to. Self-care is really important when we've been hurt because we need to find ways to, re- to remind ourselves that God is good and there is good in the world because we have seen up close and personal there's a lot of bad. And if you're sitting in this room and you have been the person who has hurt somebody, you've pressured a girl to send the picture. You've sent pictures to them without their permission, without their consent. You have pressured and browbeat and over and over and over until finally somebody stopped saying no. If that's your background, Talk to somebody and deal with that. Because the guilt for that will eventually take you to a really difficult place. And it is, a, it is so hard to have any level of intimacy with God when there's this thing back here that I'm trying to hide or don't want anybody to find out. Um, the beauty of grace is it doesn't matter what our behavior has been. God can forgive, and God can clean us up. Whatever mess we've created or whatever mess has been dumped on us, God can clean it up. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand, and he put a song of praise in my mouth. Whatever your background is, the hurt and the stuff that goes along with it, recognize that ultimately God is the healer. Um, Sometimes he works through people with flesh and bones to be part of that healing journey. But at the end of the day, healing is a spiritual thing and comes from God. Let's pray before we head out here.
God, I recognize that there is not a hurt that has happened on this planet that has escaped you. And there is no one who understands hurt more than you do. God, I pray a blessing on anybody here tonight who has experienced the effects of sex gone wrong. And God, I ask by the power of your spirit that you would move in people and encourage hearts and give people the courage to deal with things that need to be dealt with. God, I ask a blessing that that this group of believers uh, would be a, a light shining on how to help people who are in the, the mud and the mire of hurt. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for your spirit of comfort. Thank you for loving us and adopting us as children into your family. We ask that our lives would be lived in a way to glorify you and that we would be kind and gentle with all people who need help. Pray this through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for letting me be with you tonight. We'll look forward to another time.